Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to the Cersei Podcast Network. I'm Joshua Gibbs, and this is Proverbial, the podcast where we explore the wisdom of the ages as it comes to us in Proverbs. By which I mean wise sayings a man may live by if he's not so arrogant as to think himself special. Episode 21, Pick a Side. Today's proverb comes from Cicero. I'll read it twice. I would rather be wrong with Plato than right with such men as these. Once more, I would rather be wrong with Plato than right with such men as these. As with a handful of ancient proverbs, this is attributed to Cicero, although it's a bit of a paraphrase of what you'll find in Cicero's text on the nature of the gods if you track it down. The actual quote is almost four times as long as this and is a bit broken up and it runs on a while. And so this is an abbreviation of it. It's an ellipses of the actual quote. Although this is what you find in a lot of books of Proverbs and books of aphorisms. The such men as these are the Pythagoreans, first century sect of philosophers that Cicero argued with. But as is consistent with the nature of the show, I don't want to go really in depth into the context of the quote. 
And I would prefer for the problem to make sense as it sits on the page without a lecture, uh, just to explain all of the situation in which it comes to us. I want to treat it as a timeless quote. I would rather be wrong with Plato than right with such men as these. And in an attempt to present the quote or the proverb in a timeless manner, it's sometimes listed in books of aphorisms as, I would rather be wrong with Plato than right with anyone else. The proverb asks us to do something that modern men do not like to do, which is to pick a side. Are you with Plato or are you with someone else? That is the decision that we're put to. Modern men, and especially modern intellectuals, hate to be told to pick a side. And I've spoken about this in the show before. But in books of aphorisms that I read, it just keeps coming up. We prefer both sides or no side. That's the modern approach. We want their to be a way of approaching any issue that will offend everyone or no one. And it's problematic, this middle road, this Aristotelian middle road where we offend half. To offend half, to choose a side, and to ally ourselves with 50% of the populace. This is more difficult for intellectuals than either of the other options. To pick a side is to ally yourself with a lot of people. Not everyone, not no one, but a lot of people. Which means allying yourself with commoners. And intellectuals hate to ally themselves with commoners. How many times have you been in an intellectual conversation? A conversation about truth, about beauty, about theology. And there is someone in the group. I would say any time you're in a conversation with more than eight players and you're debating some particular issue, there's someone in that group who keeps arguing, why not both? Why can't Catholics and Lutherans be right about papal authority? There's somebody making this claim. Why can't Democrats and Republicans be right on gun control? There's always somebody who says this. If the group is bigger than 10 people, there's someone who loves trying to argue that both sides are right. Which might be another way of arguing that everybody in the group is wrong. Other people take the more forthright route and, and simply argue, neither position is right, nobody here is right. It's not that everyone has a piece of the truth, it's that nobody has the truth. And there's also, in any argument that's more than 10 people, Somebody making that claim. Neither of the positions currently on the table is right. 
I'm not suggesting that there is someone who's right in every argument. It's possible to conceive of an argument where no one's right, right? One side's arguing that one and one is five, and the other side is arguing that one and one is eight. Both sides are wrong. But it seems like in any conversation with more than 10 people, there's also somebody who's willing to claim, even on binary issues, where logic demands that one of two positions be right. Even in this sort of situation, there's somebody arguing neither is right. And the, they instead put forward some obscurist, recherche, esoteric position that attempts to reconcile all the facts in a completely counterintuitive way. And then there's everybody in between who has chosen a side. Intellectuals hate to choose a side. Academics hate to choose a side. I want to say that in this big conversation that I'm hypothetically putting forward here with 10 people, where there's a faction saying this position is right, another faction saying this position is wrong, and then this minority that says neither position is right, and then another minority that says both positions are right. I want to say that the people on the very extremes of this debate just don't have any courage often enough. That why not both and why not neither are often gutless positions. I make this claim having argued for a lot of gutless positions over the course of my life. For years, I would say from the time, oh, from the time I was 25 until 35, maybe, whenever the subject of politics came up, I would always try to carve out for myself some careful micro-niche position that really evaded taking a stand on one side of an issue. So in America, political arguments come down to what counts as the right and what counts as the left. But for at least 10 years of my life, whenever some issue would come up, I would always resist stating an opinion or taking a stand, rather. And the opinion that I would put forward on any issue, if anybody pressed me, how do you vote? I would say, well, I really believe that a robust aristocracy is best especially an aristocracy that's underwritten by a monarchy, which is sanctioned by a church. And then I would name all of the political and quasi-political figures and philosophers that I liked. I would say, I approve of the Constantinian project. I approve of Theodosius's robustness. But I also have a great deal of sympathy for Charles V. 
Charles I is a figure that speaks deeply to me. And despite all of these conservative leanings, FDR is my favorite president, although I don't know that anyone understands really what it means to be a conservative today. And Edmund Burke, I think, is the smartest man who walked the modern earth. But after I had given this little speech so many times, I mean, for years, I gave this speech for a decade. I gave this speech for 10 years of my life, and finally I just got tired of it because it seemed so disingenuous. It seemed gutless. And it might be true. I never lied. I do think a robust aristocracy is best. But I'm just some guy in America, in the modern day, with absolutely no political power. What am I going to do? Snap my fingers and turn the, turn the United States into an aristocracy with a monarchy underwritten by a bishop? It's ridiculous. So I'm tired of this speech. And one day... One day I admitted to myself, you always vote rather predictably. <laughs> I'm a predictable voter. I always, on any significant issue, I ask somebody I trust how to vote. I mean, this is for president, city elections, what have you. For years now, just voted however my father votes. But if you press me, I would always vote one way. I got sick of giving the speech, and anymore, if somebody asks me, my approach to politics can be summed up in one four-syllable word. What are you? So why would Cicero rather be wrong with Plato than right with anyone else. Are truth and loyalty just a game of odds? You pick the philosophical team with the best track record and you root for them even when the chips are down. And we come to this question that I find myself often coming to on this show when thinking through the implications of a proverb. It's this question, how is this not relativism? I would rather be wrong with Plato than right with such men as these. It could be mistaken for relativism. But nobody's right about everything. So I want to go back and I want to work through this question. Do you just pick the philosophical team with the best track record? Is this just a sort of democracy of truth? Nobody's right about everything. Although, Plato, uh, Cicero seems to wager, Plato was right about most things. Nobody got as many things right as Plato. And the fact that Plato got a few things wrong 
does not mean that I need to systematically go through Plato's works and carefully judge each one. What Cicero is saying is that he trusts Plato more than he trusts himself. This is a bizarre claim to make in a modern space. I amuse my students from time to time. When they ask me what I think about some obscure theological issue. And I say, ah, I just believe whatever my church teaches on that. I don't even know what my church teaches on that. You could probably find out before I could just go online and see what Orthodox people believe about this. That's what I believe. And they're amazed. What? You believe what your church teaches when you don't even know what they teach? Yes, I trust my church. You believe what's in a science book before you read it, right? Somebody asked you, what do you believe about stalagmites? I don't know. Let me look it up. You're just going to trust whatever the book says before you even read it? Well, yeah. Yes, I am. I take the same approach when it comes to theological things. Now, of course, there's a great range of things that my church doesn't have any formal dogmatic teaching on. But so far as the issues that my students ask me about, what do you think about end times? I don't know. Let's see what I believe about end times. Go over to the OrthoWiki page and look it up. I don't have personal opinions about every theological issue. Because I trust my church more than I trust myself. And I would say that a man needs a highest point of appeal At the same time, there's a great host of people whose opinions I trust more than my own. And those people are not my church. They're just lesser intellectuals. I trust Roger Scruton more than I trust myself. On political issues about which my church makes no proclamation. I would rather be wrong with Roger Scruton than right with anyone else. Now, is this relativism? I don't think so. I think Christians these days are too quick to blame relativism. I understand that it's a problem. But I don't know that every personal approach to truth is relativism. And that's what Cicero is putting forward here. He speaks as though truth is personal. Because this proverb is not rational. It's manifestly not rational. It's emotional. There is real contempt exhibited toward the Pythagoreans, such men as these. And this is because the character of the one speaking the truth matters. Cicero knows this. You know this. Not everyone who says factual things is speaking the truth. In the same way that beauty can be deceitful, facts can be deceptive too. 
almost want to say that in the same way that beauty can be deceitful, truth can be deceitful. There, and there's such a thing as false goodness as well. There's manipulated truth. There's commodified truth. And it's for this reason that Christ silences the demons who truly announce his identity in Mark's gospel. The demons say, this is the Holy One of God. And Jesus says, shut up. And it's not because they're saying false things. It's because they don't have the right to speak that truth. The character of demons is impure. So they don't get to speak the truth. Speaking the truth is an obligation, but at the same time, speaking the truth is also an honor. I recently was reading a piece of fiction where one character who desperately loved another character was protective even of the name of the beloved. Didn't want certain people speaking the name of the beloved. This rings so true that there are some people who speak the name of our beloved and we are outraged. Don't you say his name. Don't you say her name. You don't have the right. Don't you bring him up. Don't you bring her up. Speaking the truth is an honor and some people seize on it falsely. Augustine makes the same claim somewhere in the city of God when he's describing how it was that demons before Christ were able to persuade and fleece nations of people. It's because they spoke the truth. Demons are not bereft of the truth. They just abuse it. There's this common saying in classical circles. You hear this all the time. All truth is God's truth. (laughs) Really uncomfortable with this. It proves too much. Because it's true on the surface. This is a dangerous proverb. I don't even know if I buy it as a real testimony of the truth. All truth is God's truth. Yes, but not all God's truth is open to man. There are a good many of God's truths that he has hidden from us because it would be harmful for us to know them. God even hides the truth from some men because the truth is too much for them. He hides certain truths from the Pharisees. There are certain truths that Adam and Eve are better off not knowing. Too often, I think this this proverb, all truth is God's truth. Too often when it's spoken, it means all facts are God's facts. Truth and facts are not the same. All truth is God's truth also obliterates any hierarchy in truth. All truth is God's truth levels a hierarchy of meaning and value and importance that truth has. 
Although Christ himself acknowledges that some commandments are more important than others. Some places are holier than others. Holiness itself is not an on-off switch. Neither is truth. Some truth is more important than others. Some holiness is greater than other holiness. Cicero would rather be wrong with Plato because Plato's character is proven. It's trustworthy. And Cicero has the confidence in Plato's character to say that if Plato has made a mistake, it's an honest mistake. Men such as these are not proven, though. And thus Cicero cautions us against chasing after anyone who has some claim of truth that seems novel and which defies conventional wisdom. Character matters, though. Your character matters. My character matters. We cannot assume that merely speaking the truth is sufficient for every sane person to trust us. You've got to show yourself a person worthy of speaking the truth. And so the proverb of Cicero asks us to consider whether we are the kind of people that men can trust. Would anyone rather be wrong with you than right with the fashionable prophets of your day who come along speaking dazzling novelties? deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.